a designer in India is looking at Apple as this is the epitome of web design. And design in Russia is doing the exact same thing. So we end up mm-hmm. in a place where minimalism, less is more, white space, all of those terms end up directing us towards a design language that's exactly the same across the world. We usually see appropriation of cultures in a negative light. But as the global design aesthetic becomes more and more homogenized, and we can't even tell which country a website comes from, We're starting to ask ourselves, how can we give more personality and bring more culture back into our design aesthetics? Batsurai lets us in on how he created the Sankofa typeface and design system. He's a UX designer and we delve into his process and what culture means in design. We have such a backlog of episodes and exciting interviews to upload. Next up are conversations with Mugendi Mritha and Gideon Mashava. I'm Adrian. Welcome to Africa Design and enjoy the conversation. Batsirai Mazonga, thank you for joining me. You're in Dubai, right? That is correct, in the UAE. Beautiful weather right now, this time of year. How did you end up in Dubai then? Most of my life I lived in Zimbabwe, Harare. After graduating, I went back there and started a design studio. Did that for five years, then ended up moving to South Africa when I got married to start our life there. And two years into South Africa, I managed to land a job in Dubai. So through a recruitment agency, she actually met the lady when I first moved to South Africa because I was looking for something to do. A couple of years later, she hits me up and says, opportunity in Dubai, would you be interested? I've always wanted to work overseas. So I said, yeah, let's do it. And managed to get it and moved. Take me back to where it started in Zimbabwe. You said you started with five years of your own agency. How did that come about? What was the work like? What were you doing? Yeah, it's actually an interesting time in history for Zim in general. So I studied computer science at University of Cape Town. I graduated in 2007 and I moved back to Harare 2008. 2008 is when like hyperinflation was hitting like Zimbabwe really hard. It was pretty bad. And that's when we kind of switched to the dollarized system where in order to survive as a business, we had to bill our clients in US dollars instead of local currency. So that's what really helped us grow. In terms of how it started a childhood friend of mine introduced me to a friend of his I met the guy and he was very enterprising also from a kind of a technical background with code he was basically like me in that he had a technical understanding and aptitude and a passion for code but he was also a designer and a passion for the creative side when you're a designer who can code and design they call you a unicorn So you can imagine meeting another unicorn. It's like a once in a lifetime thing. So we hit it off and he happened to be planning to do his own thing. I joined him in that endeavor. My dad gave us a room to use at our house. So that was our first office. We hit the ball running, started meeting clients, bringing them to the house, doing work. It was good enough that we actually did manage to move out and rent an office in town. A couple months later, we got a personal assistant to handle the admin. We focused on growing the business. Five years later, we're still at it. It was an amazing time because when you're working for yourself, it really gives you time to learn a whole breadth of skill set. So I had to learn 3D, I had to learn code, I had to learn animation, I had to learn design and different aspects of design. And this is all in the context of, again, hyperinflation. How did that context of hyperinflation influence your choices as a designer or maybe your taste, your aesthetic as a designer? 
So I think my aesthetic as a designer was always benchmarked on global kind of standards, which is what I think set us apart as a design studio. Because a lot of the work that was done in Zimbabwe isn't held up to a higher standard. It's almost like where clients don't expect anything more than quote-unquote mediocrity, so that's what they're given. I see it actually changing now when I look at some of the designers and their portfolios. When you kind of rewind 10 years ago, when we were starting out in 2008, the quality of work being done wasn't that great. Also in the context of hyperinflation, a lot of people had to subsidize their income and salaries by doing side hustles, which manifested in a lot of people starting businesses and needing logos, websites, business cards, etc. So that's really where we came in and provided them a design solution that was cost-effective, really, really high quality, and kind of geared for the startup community. So a lot of our client base, probably 90% for the first three, four years were just ordinary people who needed to start businesses in order to survive. And it was quite fulfilling to actually be able to equip people to pursue other areas that would give their family income to survive. I've seen a piece at the Design Museum, I think in London, that actually has the Zimbabwean currency. And <laughs> it's one of those very well-known posters, I yeah. believe. Yeah. Has there already passed enough time that people are feeling a sort of nostalgia for the times before or utilizing that in kind of the creative outputs in some ways? No, because unfortunately it's in a place where we're actually going back to where things are really bad and you're just trying to survive. You know, it's in that place right now where people, again, have to go back to having something besides your salary to survive. It gets far removed from the realm of nostalgia when you're still living in that reality. There's no, oh, you remember the days when hyperinflation 2008, when you're actually living in, it might not be hyperinflation, but it is still quite extreme inflation. How are designers responding through what they're doing and are they trying to help people or in what ways they can? I feel that would be uh, an accurate way of putting it. Creative people have always had that ability to empower other people through our work. So I feel like that's definitely still going on. And I've seen some really amazing work actually coming out of Zim now. The future is looking bright for designers. Yeah, I've seen a lot happening and a lot of the exciting designers coming from Zim actually these days. Exactly. Good. And then yourself, you've flown the nest and you're abroad. How is that work abroad kind of impacting your worldview, your life view? That's a good question. I think I'm in a place where I'm fortunate enough to be experiencing things as they happen. So a lot of what's happening in the world right now is in kind of the space of digital transformation blessed enough to be in a country that's at the forefront of some of that innovation from a digital point of view. And that actually allows me to use that experience and to talk to people back home and actually expose them to some of the things that are happening. Things that I now realize that I take for granted mm. are things that are years away from happening in Zim for some of the reasons that we've spoken about. So even businesses there mean as a necessity has to happen in order for companies there to survive. But it's certainly not a topic of conversation from what I've noticed. I was chatting to a designer actually last month and he was saying in their strategy meetings with marketing, they still talk about printing flyers and handing them out at a traffic light, right? And you don't see that anywhere here. Everything is all digital. I was just going to say, from what you're seeing and the things that you're passing on, what are the highlights and what are the things that the businesses perhaps, even though they're struggling day to day, and even though they're still handing out flyers, are there things they need to be looking at 
even though it seems perhaps out of context to their situation right now? I think it boils down to moving with the times because social media and the digital space is very much alive in Zimbabwe, for instance. People there are very big on platforms like Twitter, obviously Facebook, and I'm not sure how businesses are actually leveraging those platforms because you still see like people in marketing, as far as I understand anyway, leveraging heavily on traditional media, not really digital. And I'm not sure why that is because some of the people that are in these marketing departments are quite young. I honestly don't know why the paradigm shift hasn't happened yet completely. Is there maybe something about the hierarchy and the way that ideas get presented within the system to higher ups and then coming back to actually making those changes, right? We've printed a thousand flyers every time, then why shouldn't we this time? (laughs) I think you're absolutely right. So it is an organizational change that has to happen from the top down. Try to implement change from the bottom up but if the top doesn't agree nothing's going to change you've also spent time in cape town right what did south africa teach you i think south africa really opened the door to the world for me because for the first time i was in an environment where digital came first so my first job in south africa was actually at a purely digital agency And that really, really helped me shift my mindset from saying I'm really good at designing logos and business cards to I now know how to design an effective Google Display Network banner, for example. So it was really an intro into what would now become my career going forward, which is digital. What sort of things can you tell us about that you're working on? Again, it's mostly digital. So websites, apps and software platforms. I was just working at MSMBD, which is one of the biggest banking groups in the UAE. I was the design system lead there. The work there involved working on their internal platforms as well as their retail banking solutions like your internet banking and the mobile app. So that was really cool to work in a, in a large organization that really and truly put digital first. I think they're probably the most digitally mature organization in the Middle East because some of the things they do, other companies, even in the UK, like we were chatting to a vendor from the UK and some of the things we're doing with design tokens they reference as being utopic and not realistic but they didn't realize that this is stuff we do every day at the bank so even some institutions in Europe are behind in as far as implementing development and design ops practices the way MSMBD was doing so it is a really good time for me to be in that place where your innovation is encouraged and supported, like we're talking about top down, bottom up. From the CEO going down, everyone was on the same bandwagon. So you could make suggestions for innovation and it was received with open arms because everyone wanted to innovate and be the best. So taking that experience through, you actually find that my experience at the bank in financial services becomes like a niche because you now get sought after for that particular bit of experience. I'm excited to have you on as well because of Sankofa. We really felt right to use it as the theme font for Nairobi Design Week 2021 for the words together. So people will be seeing that all over our feed, etc. Even though you're based abroad and you have been for a while, you're still active in the African design scene and you're still keeping up to date and creating projects such as this one. So how did Sankofa come about? Cool. Yeah. So Sankofa, it's really a combination of a lot of things. I would say the seeds started when I met Saikima Fundipa because I lectured at his institution Ziva in Zimbabwe for a couple of years. 
And when I watched his TED talk on typography, it opened my eyes to the fact that as designers who are trained in obviously design, we're not really exposed to other, be it writing systems or the history of design in other cultures. Because most of our curriculum, most of our studies are based on American and European kind of authors, material and curriculums. To watch Saki's talk where he speaks of the writing systems from Africa being much older than even writing systems in places like Babylon, for instance, it was quite eye-opening. I would say that's where it started because in his TED talk, he actually speaks of the Sankofa writing system from Ghana, which is where he gave a whole presentation on the symbols that were created there. So Sankofa is a glyph in a writing system from Ghana. And Sankofa means return to your roots, learn from the past. It felt like it made sense years later when I was working at MSMBD now. And because it's the banking group based in the Middle East, there are certain things that we're starting to look at. Like how do we appropriate culture in a way that bespoke to our users, like talking about that user-centered design approach. And how do we represent certain things like, for example, a home icon. The way a home icon is represented online right now is typically just a house, right? Western design, a house with an angled roof, that's a home icon. But when you look at houses in Morocco or South Africa, the architecture doesn't lend itself to align with that kind of home icon. So I was just thinking to myself one day, like if you were to use design systems, which I was doing at the time, how would you use design systems to reappropriate your digital products from a cultural perspective? And that's kind of where Sankofa came. Because I'm African, it seemed like a logical starting point to kind of experiment with that notion of if you were to culturally appropriate things like typography and iconography, even color palettes, how would you do it? So I started researching on African design, writing systems, etc. And Sankofa was born. Perhaps, could you tell me through like the process of designing one of these icons and adjusting it to suit the style. The houses, right? You picked up on the houses, for example. Yeah. And how those are different. Yeah. These were all really based on my own personal life experience. The real reason I actually created the Sankofa project is to try and empower designers from all over the world, not just African designers, to look at the way things are done and try and look at it from the perspective of your own life experience, your own cultural history, and where you're from. So depending on where your users are, could you change your home icon, for example, to something other than what they're traditionally used to seeing? And it'll still make sense to them because it's a home icon that's based on that particular culture's idea of what a house or home looks like and what things like home or financing or banking or archiving. How did that stuff look like when I was growing? And that's how the icon set came to be. What sort of challenges have you faced as an African designer, as an African creative, or just as an African going into new cultures and presenting your own culture and making sure that your viewpoints are represented? I would say none, because as an industry, we really draw from like international standards and international trends. So being an African designer, designing in Dubai, there's not much quote-unquote African inspiration I can draw from because we're not necessarily designing for Africa. It's even worse in Dubai because 90% of 
the populace is expatriates. So you're looking at people from over 120 countries living in Dubai, and that's who you're designing for. You really do have to be inclusive, true to your company's brand, but also not too culturally specific because you're catering for a customer base that has over 120 countries, right? My experience being an African designer doesn't really contribute to my experience here. We're designing based on international trends, international best practices and best in class approaches. So what about that kind of shared experience of so many nations under one country, under one label? What have you learned, maybe picked up, seen as commonalities between the Emirates and between Africa? I think the most common element is we all look up to the same kind of design gods, if I'm to put it that way. So a client brief in South Africa will say, we want a website that looks like Apple, right? That's a South African client. You're in Dubai, same narrative. We want a website that looks like Apple. We all have the same North Star when it comes to design. When you put designers in a room that come from like five different countries, as was in our case. So it's really easy to align on aesthetics and ways of working and ETC because we're all kind of striving to be the best in the way that the world currently views the best as being, whether it's Apple, whether it's Google's material design. It's interesting you bring up Apple got brought up a lot, of course, and we all grew up looking up to them for many good reasons, I guess. I always looked up to minimal design and the minimal aesthetic and aspired to that. And we kind of grew up in this period when design was trying to almost standardize itself. Now we've managed to do that and every website looks the same. <laughs> and I don't know if we're in this moment or just before this moment where people are trying to differentiate themselves, right? It's almost like you spend your childhood trying to be the same as everyone else and spend your adult years trying to be different to everyone else, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's part of the reason Sankofa came to be because I started writing articles on Medium and I was looking for topics to write on. And one of the topics that I thought of was what is the current state of our digital landscape versus the state of our physical landscape? Mm. And to write that article, I started looking at images of cultures from around the world. If you look at that cultures in China, Japan, India, Africa, you name it, even Russia, with the way the architecture and the colors kind of come through there and the textures, it's all really colorful. It's all really vibrant. You can tell in Indian architecture next to Russian, you can tell the difference right from the get-go. There's no commonality at all. But when you look at an Indian website and a Russian website, that falls through. So I started to think, why is that? And that's, again, where Sankofa came through, where I was saying, a designer in India is looking at Apple as this is the epitome of web design. And design in Russia is doing the exact same thing. So we end up in a place where minimalism, less is more, white space, all of those terms end up directing us towards a design language that's exactly the same across the world. It has its good and its bad, but I think to your point, it's ending up in a place where our digital world isn't really representative of our physical world. And I feel like we're losing a lot from that perspective. Yeah, it's that homogenization of these aesthetics and also interesting you gave the example of india you'd go to like a shop in india and you'd see like a crazy designed poster right that design aesthetic is honest in the sense that it is actually trying to communicate what the people are presenting and even though all the fonts may be different and there may be so many rules design rules broken now if they give you just a white leaf that looks like KFC from the same restaurant. 
you might not actually be as excited to eat there, right? Because they're not trying to do their own thing. It really is, how do you become more authentic in your kind of approach to design? When I was presenting the Sankofa project to various creators, one question started to come up a lot, which was, how do you reconcile creating culturally inclusive design with the personality of the brand when you're trying to culturally appropriate that brand across various cultures digitally across the world. And I think to answer that, my answer was you don't need to lose your brand in the midst of that exercise because it's really about the nuance of your designs, not changing the entire design in its totality, but seeing where you can get the most bang for your buck, change small things like your illustrations, your illustration color palette, not your primary brand color palette, your icon sets, what can you do there? The meaning of color in your digital products. And one designer actually pointed this out where they were rolling out a Japanese digital product in Europe. And there's certain things that they had to change because in Europe, X did not mean X, X meant Y. So they had to change the way they dealt with color, in some cases, typography as well. It actually started a conversation that I felt was worth having right now. As we homogenize our design, how do we shift to now being more culturally inclusive and not lose our real world heritage on the digital landscape? Are there any things you've learned particularly where you've been working recently or other people that you've learned from who have really made an impact in the way they allow you to look at a culture? kind of breakthrough ways. I think Saki would probably be number one on that list, given that he's been unapologetically African in everything he does. And I think it's quite refreshing to have that. And there are a lot of actually African designers who are unapologetic in their heritage and they bring out the African in the things they do. And I think I feel that's something that should be celebrated across the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He gave a talk this week at the World Class Designers Conference. Did you manage to catch any of that? No, I didn't, unfortunately. It was really good, really well put together and goes back to what we were talking about. You know, it was organized with Africa largely in mind and it's important to say that you can have a focus on Africa and African design without talking about it specifically in the name, but also these people putting it together can be world-class designers. And now we're seeing more world-class designers coming through from Africa. And Simon Chawe was there as well. He talked about design and culture. One slide really made an impact on me where he talked about how no culture has the right to enforce a design aesthetic or a design sensibility on any other culture. And it kind of reminded me of what we're just talking about, really. It's very difficult to distinguish where one culture starts and another ends right now anyway. But it's definitely possible to kind of track back and look at history and learn from history. Also now to be seeing so much expression from many places of the world, the creative industries in more established markets are really just trying to grab onto the amazing creative and trying to harness it within their own plans, right? Yeah, definitely. Have you got any other African teachers or mentors or people within the creative sphere or just more broadly you've learned from? From a creative point of view, I actually can't think of anything top of my head because Saki has been such a pivotal, he might not know this because I haven't told him that he's pivotal for me. I can't remember his name, but there's an architect as well I watched a TED talk on and he also opened my eyes 
applies to the fact that the world of architecture kind of suffers from the same thing where mm-hmm. like he went to school in the States and when you learn architecture from a Western and European perspective, the danger is you take that into your profession, right? Same way designers are less is more oriented and minimalist oriented. And what he's done is the flip side of that where he's gone back home and he's developing ways of building an architecture that are applicable to the people that are in his Mm -hmm. ecosystem and where he lives. It's quite interesting, but it's amazing how he's classical education and flip that on its head to be able to innovate in Africa when it comes to building materials, the actual design of the buildings and ways of building as well. Are there things you've experienced that maybe would surprise you if you saw yourself 10 years ago, whether things you've worked on or things you've experienced or just mindsets that have changed? I think the world has changed a lot since I started 10 years ago because I wasn't necessarily planning on becoming a user experience designer. In many ways, I didn't even really know what that was until I started doing it. But I feel like just being a designer in the digital space is really where people need to be. When I speak to designers back home in Zim, some of them don't really know the career paths that are available on the digital space. And it's a shame because by the time those people graduate and have a little bit of work experience, AI and automation would have taken over a lot of the mundane tasks that they're trying to perfect right now. So it's almost like you're learning a skill that's not going to be needed five years from now. It's really shifting towards designers being problem solvers, not designers rolling out content because machine learning can do that for us. So how are you prepping then? as a designer for what's coming, you know, the revolution that's coming in front of us? Yeah, that's a great question. So I feel like having some kind of tech savvy helps. I get asked this question a lot from young designers. Like, because I have a development background, they always ask me, I have no idea how to code. Do I need to learn how to code? Because I don't know the first thing about math and code. I'm a creative. But what I always tell them is, you don't need to code, but you need to at least have an appreciation of how the technical aspect affects what you do and how what you do affects the technical aspect. Because when machine learning comes into play, you're going to need to understand how these systems work so you can better strategize and implement when you're having your creative meetings and huddles, how you can best leverage that technology to get ahead. Because the design teams that are really going to be able to leverage that technology are going to leapfrog over designers that don't. Mm -hmm. What about no-code tools? Have you been using any or come across any? So you get to build stuff without coding like drag and drop sort of things. Yeah. Like Figma. So what I'm actually more interested in is how those platforms are going to be for three or five years when the no code aspect really becomes mainstream. Because I don't feel like right now the no code aspect is very mainstream. When you say no code, you mean how design is automated, right? From design to a finished product without having to code. So it's things that allow you to build a website for example, without any code. Yeah, like Wix, like Squarespace, things like, I don't know if you've heard of Bubble or Asana. Yeah, Yeah. so two things to kind of touch on there. The first thing is no-code tools are very real. And I feel like sometimes designers, especially back home where I'm from, aren't clued up on how that really affects them. 
because a lot of them are focusing on, for example, when you're freelancing as a designer, you're creating websites and you're designing logos. I would say that's where the bulk of your work comes from. And the problem is both of those things are now freely available online without any skill needed whatsoever. So it's eroding. Like back when I was doing websites, you could charge $1,500 for a website easy because no code tool didn't exist. Now a client comes and you can't really charge for a corporate website the same amount because you can go on Wix and do it in a few minutes and without being a designer, without being anything because it has templates there ready for you. So for people to realize that they need to shift on, okay, so a client needs a website. How do I add value that Wix or no code tools don't give that client. And mm -hmm. I feel like that's where the focus needs to be, even if it's a uh, brand design, because you get those logo generators online, right? And most often than not, they're good enough for what the client needs, because they're not trying to be a global brand. They just need to sell chickens to a supermarket. They just need a basic logo. So you don't need a brand strategy and all that when a client just wants a $20 logo. It starts to erode a lot of the value that designers used to have. And coming back to user experience design, how a no-code tool is going to affect us <laughs> and I was watching uh, a talk given by this guy called Benjamin Wilkins who at the time of the talk I think it was about three years ago he was at Airbnb he gave a demo on how by leveraging their mature design system and the way they built their components they could sketch on a whiteboard during their brainstorm session and by having your machine learning algorithm connected to a camera and object recognition, it could pick out the elements you're drawing and map it to an existing component in their design system. Wow. It is quite amazing to see that live where it's a whiteboard session, they're drawing stuff and designing kind of their wireframes and discussing design solutions. And the system is actually real time building the solution using their built components. And what that showed me is in the same way that traditional design has been commoditized, we're kind of going to a place where the UI part of it is becoming really, really mundane. Even today, when I design, UI isn't really a key focus because a lot of our clients have mature design systems. So as a UI designer, your job is just to make sure it's perfect, not really to innovate in as far as how the actual product ends up looking. It's more about the experience of using the product than how the product looks. I had a couple of questions that came up. Firstly, as we're talking about these no-code tools and we're praising them for the ability to give anyone for again democratizing design and now looking back at what we were saying about every design looking generic and now when you go in if everyone's using Squarespace for their portfolio then everyone's yeah. portfolio looks the same right as an example I think that's designer's fault because there is a designer who's creating templates for Squarespace and for Wix. So nothing stops Wix from creating a Wix, Africa.Wix, where the okay. set on Africa.Wix is geared towards that market, right? Or Japan, whatever it is. It's really the responsibility of the people designing these templates, because I don't think it's machine learning that's designing Wix templates at the moment. It's probably someone's mm. on his computer. So those people, or rather, let's put it on Wix, they need to have a platform where designers across the world can submit themes that are culturally inclusive or contextually appropriate for the environment they're living in. Maybe doing it that way would open it up to a lot more diverse kind of digital sphere. But were there other stories for this first time that you really wanted to share and kind of any anecdotes 
that came to mind that you think would be useful for people to share? Yeah, I think for me, the biggest thing right now is the ability for creatives to really map out what the future of their desired career path is going to be within the context of like the near future, five or 10 years. Because a lot of the designers that are in school right now, for example, in African design schools, I worry that they're not learning the right thing and they're not being exposed to the right thing. Because when you're now trying to get a job or when you're now trying to freelance and design, the world's going to be very different to what you're learning in school right now, be it in design school or wherever you are in Africa. I feel like conversations, especially around technology, need to be had in order to make sure that young designers are equipped for what's coming. Totally agree with that. And even for ourselves as well, there's kind of going to be a time when people who feel young and feel like they shouldn't be getting left behind are going to be getting left behind, right? A friend of ours called Esther Kute, she's done a lot of things and teaches as well and we always have these conversations about the future of design and tech and looking really at if truck drivers and Uber drivers are feeling threatened now, <laughs> then Canva is one step there and Squarespace. And then the next step in Russia has already been taken because there was an AI last year that full client. Great example as well. People aren't hearing these stories. When they hear AI, they think we're far away from that reality when in fact it's happening today. Mm -hmm. Designers need to develop what they're offering, right? And they still have a lot to offer, but just have to bear in mind that it's beyond the tools that you're using. Absolutely. And I feel like when you look at technologies that are being developed, for example, with Elon Musk's Neuralink and how they're creating ways for human beings to interact with tech in ways that aren't limited by our physical limitations. Because currently our inputs with technology is based on our fingers, is based on screens that we're seeing and the information that's coming there. And as designers, we're currently designing according to those limitations, right? So all our UX best practices on accessibility, typography, colors, all that stuff is based on screens and how people interact with technology today. So when that no longer becomes an issue 10 years from now, even five years from now, when Neuralink goes live with brain implants that allow you to stream Spotify directly to your brain, as an example, how does that affect designers working at Spotify, right? When all their design systems currently are tailored towards screens. So as designers, we need to actually see okay, project yourself five, 10 years from now. How do I pivot my understanding of design? How do I pivot, like you're saying, my skill sets? How do I open my mind to just even the possibility that the design practice can happen on interfaces that are purely in someone's mind? How does that even look like? So we need to start thinking like this if we're going to survive as designers. The world's not going to change in that way because it's already happening and it needs to happen for the next frontier of our kind of development as a species is concerned. You've mentioned to me that you worked as well with a Nigerian designer on the project. So what was the process behind creating the typeface from scratch? When I first came up with the idea of creating the typeface, I only knew one thing, that I wanted it to feel authentic and I wanted it to feel African. I actually approached a typography designer who's from Mexico. I was trying to work with referrals because I knew in order to find someone great, the easiest way is to get referred by someone who's actually 
actually knows them, who's seen their work. I ended up being referred to a Nigerian artist, which ended up making more sense because if I wanted something authentic, it made sense to hire someone from Africa to do it. So I had a look at his work on Instagram. I loved what he did and what he represented and got in touch with him. And his brief was simple. I just wanted something that felt African, authentic and ethnic. I wanted to really leave the creativity up to him. I didn't want to constrain him with my preconceived notions of what the typeface should be. So he came up with an idea and the first option he came up with was the one. He immediately understood what I wanted to create and so he gave me that initial kind of nudge in terms of art direction and then I took it up and created the rest of the letter forms and numbers, symbols and actually created the typeface itself and published it. What did you then as like a first time type designer learn from him that you could take away for future projects? I actually wasn't involved in his entire process. When it comes to actually the thinking behind how he created the typography, unfortunately, I think because of COVID and what was happening in Nigeria at the time, it kind of limited what we were able to do. What I did manage to get out of it is it's no easy task. I wasn't really aware of how difficult creating a typeface is until I actually did it. It took us months to get to a place where it was actually ready for the world to see. So you said he got you started on the art direction and then you took it over. So at what stage did you take it over and how did that work? So all he gave me was basically a still, a JPEG of some of the letters. I had to then digitize those, fill in the blanks. He had different options for various letters. For example, the letter S had like three options to choose from. So I had to kind of refine the options to come up with the full set of alphabets and I actually ran it past Saki because Saki Mafundikwa is also quite a notable typographer. He gave me some tips on how to improve it, which letter forms didn't make sense, which ones look better. Because I'd never done it, I had to kind of research on what was actually required to create a font. Resources I found useful were places like My Font, for example. When you're submitting a font to them, they give you a whole set of requirements on how to actually package your typeface and submit it. But then use that to further expand what the actual typeface looked like, which actually led me to create different weights for it. Because initially I wasn't planning on, but I realized in order for it to be as versatile as I wanted it to be for both print and digital, it needed to have multiple weights. It added probably three months into the development timeline because I had to kind of relook how some letters looked in the different weights. When you were developing it, did you have any use case scenarios in mind or target audiences for it? Absolutely. The idea actually was born out of design systems. So I wanted to create my own design system, a Sankofa design system that included components, for UI design and color palettes and custom typography. Out of the gates, the first use case was going to be bundled with my Sankofa design system. I wanted it primarily to be used in digital executions. You mentioned as well Saki Mafundikwa, your mentor. Do you remember any of the wise advice that he shared with you when you were working on this project? Yeah, I actually first ran into the idea close to two years now when I was starting to develop the whole Sankofa idea. I ran it past him. Coincidentally, he had been actually asked to produce a talk and part of it was actually in line with my thinking, which was as designers, it's good to look back and learn from the past, which is what Sankofa represents as a concept. So we had some initial talks initially just to flesh out what the idea was and what it stood for. So when I reached out to him about 
about a year later, when I was actually beginning the work, he reinforced how important the project was and how topical it actually was on the global design space. And this was reiterated when I presented the idea to some designers in Amsterdam. I gave a talk on cultural inclusion. They echoed the same kind of sentiments where our digital landscape is beginning to look the same. As designers, we need to kind of do something about that or we fall into a place where we start to lose our identity as a species on where our world is not really represented well enough on digital because everyone kind of has the same aesthetic as the North Star. And the Sankofa design system and what it means, is that something that now you're planning on taking forward into other areas as well? Yes, I created it as a way to inspire designers around the world to create their own based on their own life experiences and their own cultural Influences. So I certainly aim to beyond the typeface. There's an icon pack as well. I'm almost finished with the full design system, which will include components to be used in UI design and a color palette that's in this case, it's kind of dangerous to say the color palette is African, but it certainly is derived from things that remind me of the colors that I saw around me. And based on research I did, some colors that are also used mean certain things in various African communities. Have you got any examples? from the colors then of what stories evoked those colors? A lot of them were actually born from architecture. So I started where, for example, South Africa and the Zulu people have quite a unique way of using color, quite vibrant, quite colorful. So the first thing that popped into my mind when I was trying to develop the color palette was those kind of palettes and the way they used colors, but also shapes and geometry. That was probably where I started. And when I say architecture, I mean the kind of textures and shades used in building materials. So you've got your earth kind of tones. Looking at your work, with design systems and now being an experienced design lead, how are those kind of analog textures and experiences, sensual things coming into your work on a 2D or digital at least display? That's actually a great question. Where I feel my work as inexperienced design intersects with that Sankofa project is empathy. I'm trying to create digital experiences that users can easily connect with because they seem familiar. I'm still kind of at the precipice of that work and trying to see how far I can push it. I watched a TED talk on how some African communities actually use fractals in the way they design their communities from an architecture point of view. How their villages are structured where you have a compound within a compound within a compound all the way down to individual family units and how they sit around their structures. It's all built around the same concept. So it forms like a fractal which is shapes within shapes. And I found that quite interesting where it's based on a mathematical model, but it's so abstract and so real world and physical in its nature that I felt there was something there to explore when it came to how we can create patterns, geometry in our UI design. There's also like an aspect of patterns that I'm also trying to develop along with color palettes and typography. Is that also part of Sankofa? Absolutely. Okay. So there's like a whole rollout planned for this identity. Yeah. So it's meant to be kind of modular in its nature where each aspect, when I speak of inspiring designers from around the world, they can take each aspect of Sankofa and retrofit it to their experiences and influences. So whether it's the typography or the color palettes, the icons or the patterns that come with Sankofa, all of those should be able to be regionalized based on where each designer is. Have you had others get in touch with you who have bought the font and told you what they're doing with you or shown you some examples? 
examples. Not yet. Nairobi designer okay. first. <laughs> oh, that's good. Pioneers. <laughs> I could imagine it being used on album covers and movies. Interesting, actually. I got invited to the Type Designers Conference, I believe, in New York next month, in March. Part of their submission request was that I show them examples of how the Sankofa display font can actually be used. I hadn't actually performed that exercise extensively, but I started placing it, for example, in print executions, and it looked amazing, as well as a Netflix documentary title. So I mocked up like a Netflix UI. It looked amazing. So it actually showed me that it is possible to create something that's versatile and unique without having to rely on like serif and sans serif fonts. You could actually maybe share some of like this process stuff and we can overlay it as well, right? You mentioned you had three different S's to choose from and you had one to choose. So I'd love to know why it went that way, etc. Yeah, um, I think at the end of the day, it was actually all about legibility. If you were to put that S on its own, it looks like an S, but in the context of other letters, it starts to lose legibility. So the process was seeing how that letter works with common, especially in digital design. There are some common things we use. For example, the word success is used a lot. And seeing how that letter form works in that context, can you actually read it easily, was important. So yeah, definitely, I'll share some of that process with you. That's really interesting. Good insight about common words. And uh, we've also found that we really want to respect the font and the typeface in the way that we're not going to overuse it. So it's our theme typeface and we're not really going to use it beyond the word together theme because once it's there too much and it's flashing, then it can be difficult to pick it out. That's another thing I wanted to ask you is with the color palettes and the fonts, if you Google African font, you'll get a selection of really stereotypical I always hear people laughing at the African book cover. It's always an African savannah with a sunset and that tree and then the sun in the background. How do you then avoid leaning towards some of these stereotypes and ensure the authenticity of all these things you're working on? I think it helps that I am African. <laughs> I have a lot more to draw from than the savannah. A lot of it has to do with growing up and going to the village at Christmas to see my grandparents, for instance. Like those kind of experiences are what shape what I can relate to as an African. When I'm trying to depict Africa, I find myself leaning more towards the people than the landscapes. And you'll see this even in the Netflix mock-up I mentioned. I kind of created a fake documentary on Africa and all the shots I tried to use were all of people. Close-up portrait shots of native people. I find myself gravitating towards that sense of community, that Ubuntu kind of sense of community. It's really all about the African people. So I feel like when I'm creating things and I tend to lean more towards the people than the landscapes. So have you got any stories then from your childhood that bring back to how maybe you used to create or how you learned to create and what inspired you back then? I've always been visual. When I look at things where some people see objects, I see some of the parts. I see the parts that make up that object. I can recall like being younger, going to church, for instance, but when I was old enough to sit in the main congregation and the pastor was preaching, I would be looking at him and not see the pastor, but 
what I would see the shades of color that make up his complexion. So for some reason, I used to play this game where I would say blue, yellow, orange, purple. His complexion, based on how the light hits him, for me, was made up of the colors blue, yellow, orange, purple. It's things like that. Even when I was going back to the village, like I mentioned, the shapes that made up the buildings were very different to obviously in the urban areas. So I always kind of used to break down objects into the sum of their parts. I feel like when I'm then moved into digital design now, it's kind of like the same thing with design systems, where you've got your larger organisms, but they're made up of atomic design principle, where you've got your atoms that become molecules that become organisms. You break down your designs into their individual parts, work on those and craft those and to create something much larger, which is kind of where Sankofa also comes in because I'm working on the individual aspects like your iconography and the type colors in order to combine all of those into something that looks uniquely African, uniquely ethnic. Thank you. Wanted to ask if there's any particular use that you'd love to see Sankofa being used for, whether it's on a billboard somewhere or a particular cause or client, etc. That's an interesting question. I actually hadn't thought of it. I think for me, it honestly isn't about Sankofa. It's about sparking a larger conversation where people are starting to not see Helvetica as the be-all and end-all of, of typography. I really want designers from all over the world to start thinking about what they can do. Even if you're not a typographer like I wasn't, I had to seek out someone who understood my mission, who understood what I wanted to create. So even if designers around the world aren't typographers, seek out someone who understands where you're from, understands what you want to do and create something for yourself. What I would love to see is a designer who creates their own typography and cites Sankofa as their inspiration in actually beginning that journey and actually doing that. Well, let's hope that's something we get to see and hear. Are you working on any more typefaces? Not at the moment. What are your plans for this year then, quickly? This year, I've actually got more plans personally than I do in the design space. I've kind of resolved to do more reading. I've started easy, like one book per month is what I know I can commit to doing and, and actually do. I've also started doing more investing and learning more about financial education. I'm doing a lot more reading on property investment in different asset classes. And obviously finishing off the Sankofa project with the patterns component library somewhere down the line. It's definitely on the cards. Thank you. Where can people find you online if they'd like to reach out? Madzonga.com. That's my website. I go on there pretty much once a week. You can contact me through the forum that's on the website as well. Links to my portfolio are also on there. It's a great place to find everything I'm doing. Thank you, man. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Adrian. Appreciate it.